Welcome to the Washdown Podcast. And on this episode, we sit down with Jared Altick. Um, he is a police chaplain. Um, he's worked full-time in the church for 30 years, been married since 1996, has five kids. Um, yeah, and as a chaplain, he focuses on health and wellness of patrol officers and also responds to unattended deaths such as homicides and suicides. He also has a podcast, the Hey Chaplain podcast, which you can find on Buzzsprout and he's on Instagram and all that. We'll leave links in the description. Uh, we had a great conversation. Um, it was really fun talking with him. So check him out on all of his social. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Remember to like and subscribe and all that stuff. So here you go. The Washdown Podcast with special guest Jared Altick of the Hey Chaplin Podcast. Didn't hit the record button. It'd be nice if you would figure out how to use the record button. Oh, I can hit record. It's the pause that's the problem. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, you hover over it, even though it says stop, the little pause thing comes up in the corner. I'm like, oh, okay, so just pause it. Yeah. Oh, shit, that stopped it. Oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> we had an issue. We were shooting an episode the other day, and... uh we needed to pause, mm-hmm. and uh, he's like, "Oh yeah, I got it," and and just stopped the whole recording. So, which what it does in the computer, that's its own recording now. Yeah. So then yeah. we have another have recording. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, that, how much editing do you guys do? Do you is you just pretty much pretty much put it up raw? Uh, pretty much put it up raw. Okay. Um, I've had to edit. That's very popular now. I yeah. it, it hurts my brain to put up a raw file. <laughs> I edit everything, but. Uh, but I can't say that that's the norm anymore. Nowadays, everybody, I mean, it's kind of the Joe Rogan influence, just put up three hours of raw material and yeah. it's surprising how many people have an appetite for that. Yeah. And so, yeah. Well, that long form conversation is, you know, without the editing and all of that stuff, that's what people want to see. Yeah. You know, I think yeah. because it's unfiltered, you get people's real thoughts and real feelings. And yeah. I think, especially in this day and age of how everything can be so edited with yeah. social media and yeah. you're only getting this angle or that angle or whatever. Yeah. I think the having, authenticity yeah. is mm-hmm. appealing and yeah. it's difficult to edit video at the same level. You can edit audio only. Uh, yes. And so, and so putting up a raw video is very, like I said, surprisingly palatable to people. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I had, we've had a couple of times where we've been in the middle of conversation and some things have been said, you know, identifiers of one sort or another yeah. that have required some for me to go back and cut some pieces out and yeah. smash stuff back together. And it is never a pleasant process. No, no, no. <laughs> no, you want, you want two cameras at least because yeah. if you, if you plan to edit something, all you have to do is cut to like a close up of somebody and it hides your cut. You yeah. can cut out five minutes, but you don't know it because it went from a wide shot to a narrow shot. And that's, that's the trick, ah. but running two cameras, I mean, that's twice as much data storage. That's, I yeah. mean, that's a lot of work, but if you ever want to, that's the way to do it. Yeah. Add a second camera. Go get you some lessons. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's, <laughs> you're the... a terrible editor. <laughs> well, well, I don't, that's the reason I don't do video. <laughs> this is, I don't want to tackle it. I don't, I don't yeah. blame you. Yeah. We'll see in the, the, the idea or theory that we've been kind of going with for a long time and what we eventually want to get to is like a three or four camera system. Yeah. So that way you do have, you've got the big overall. You have a and, wide shot and a yeah. close on each person. Yeah. 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 And, and then, uh, cause we normally have, uh, our producer slash guy who hits the stop button, mm-hmm. who's not here right now. Um, 
he sits behind the, the camera over there. So mm-hmm. having a camera for him whenever he's talking, instead of it just being a disembodied voice on yeah. the video, he's you know, Jamie. yeah, yes, he's my yes, Jamie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Except he doesn't look anything up and <laughs> hey, dude, talks, just Google it. Just yeah. Google it. It's not that he talks hard. forever. Yeah. yeah. Long winded, long winded like, questions. Man, that's like a 20 minute question, man. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's anyway. no fun to make fun of when he's not here. <laughs> no, it's not. We'll have to be. Where did where did the name of the podcast come from? That's a fantastic name. Oh well, thank you. Um, well, before I answer that, let's introduce you. Okay. Uh, right. So, Jared Altic. Yes, yes, uh, Jared Altic. Yes. Thanks for uh, coming on, and you've got your own podcast, that Hey Chaplain podcast. Yes. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we'll go. We'll get back to how okay. we got the name. Uh, well, my name is Jared Altic, and I'm a chaplain with the police department. And, and the podcast is an extension of that. Really, I kind of, my whole life is a Russian nesting doll and uh, I'm a full-time pastor at a church. And so that's been my job, been at the same church for 23 years and which is unusually long for a pastor. Mm -hmm. And, and in the last 10 years, I've gotten increasingly involved with chaplaincy. Finally, about six years ago, dove in, you know, got, got in with both feet and, the chaplaincy is well supported by the leadership of my church. I'm able to to be very involved. It's my. It's not a. I mean, it's it's a volunteer thing, so it's not a paid gig. But I work it like it's a part time job. And then nested inside of that chaplaincy is the podcast, because frankly, most cops are just not going to come talk to a chaplain, and it can take it can take a long time to get behind the badge. And so the shortcut to that is I can produce a podcast where I bring other cops in to talk about the stress of the job and, and all kinds of things, career and family life and whatever. And and these cops can listen to me have this conversation and can gain something from it without having to engage me directly. And so and so the the podcast is a subset of the chaplaincy. The, the chaplaincy is a subset of my ministry in the church. And, uh, and it's the ministry in the church that pays the bills. So, so that's my primary job. Yeah. Awesome. And that is Definitely not, works. yeah. And that's not too far off of why we started this podcast. Mm-hmm. So it's the same thing of the, the people that we can get to come and talk about mental health yeah. and leadership stuff and all that stuff. We can disseminate it to a wider audience yeah. and people that don't feel comfortable coming and sharing their stories or whatever, or they may be struggling with something. They can see that they're not alone. Yeah. That other people have gone through what they are going through. So, excuse me. And that's why we started the podcast. Yeah. And the name of it is, you know, we're both in the fire service. It's basically after you're done with a fire, you're going to wet down or wash down everything to make sure there are no embers left over mm-hmm. and no hidden fire. Mm. And that's how we come up with it. Excellent. Man, it's even better than I thought it was. <laughs> yeah. That, I, I saw that and I hate it because I've, I've got lots of people that I have helped get started in podcasting. I, I, when COVID hit, I just jumped in. I'm like, I'm going to learn how to do this. This yeah. is going to be, we're, all, we're only going to be locked down for two weeks. So, so I'm going to, I'm going to learn everything <laughs> yeah. I can, everything two I weeks can to about podcasting. The curve. Band, band yes. get on YouTube. <laughs> Double, it's like a quadruple band at this point. Yep. Maybe, maybe eight times. I don't yeah. know. We're exclusively we're on Spotify now. We're going to, we're going to push the limit. <laughs> but, but I, so I've really dove deep and all the technical aspects of the cameras and the everything with YouTube, everything with podcasting, all the audio equipment. And so I've been a resource for other people, mm-hmm. but they all want to name their podcast, talk about stuff podcast with Joe. 
or whatever. Yeah. And it's like, okay, there are already a thousand podcasts that sound like that. Yeah. And so you guys's podcast washed down. I mean, wow, that is fantastic. <laughs> it's got it's surely the only one out there with a name like that. I hope there's no others that are even close. But uh but it it's that's a great unique name and that's hard to find. Yeah. Yeah, I found a couple of other first responder esque podcasts mm-hmm. that kind of have something along those lines, but it's you would be surprised. I thought there would be more. And whenever yeah. we were looking at setting this and starting it, like, I mean, that's one of the things I did was do a kind of a deep dive looking mm-hmm. for other podcasts that might be similar. Yeah. And part of that was I was going to reach out to them and pick their brain and say, hey, how do you do this? Right. And all of that stuff. Couldn't find them. There were none whenever we started yeah. this. And yeah. now there's like maybe four or five. Yeah. I am pretty unique in my area. I'm I'm surely the only police chaplain podcast in the world, which also makes me the biggest police chaplain <laughs> podcast in the world. Uh, yeah. well, I didn't know we were sitting here with a celebrity. That's right. That's right. A trailblazer. Should have brought my autograph. Right. Damn it. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it's it's uh, it's good to have a unique name. It's good to have a unique niche. Uh, too many people try to be too broad, <laughs> and they're like, oh, I want to talk to the whole world about everything. It's like, no, 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 no. Narrow it down and be specific. The more specific you can make your niche, and the more specific you can make your avatar, the person that you're aiming for. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you guys are looking for that, you know, firefighter, that's you know, picture how old he is and what his situation in life he is, it, what situation in life he is in, and then talk to him directly. Yeah. That's that's going to be far more effective than trying to talk to everybody all at once. Yeah. And so well, and the the podcast that you see that do that whole let's talk to everybody the shotgun approach. Mm-hmm. Those are people that are already famous. Yes, yes, yes. Celebrities yeah. can do that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Just, Joe Rogan can do that. Yeah. No, but yeah. I can't do that. I'm no. not going to get a physicist on here and we're going to talk about, you know, aliens or whatever. No. You know, that's no. just not going to happen. The hell we could. Let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> I've watched ancient aliens like a thousand times. <laughs> I'm ready. Practically an expert. Yeah. I yeah. mean, you know. Yeah. I mean, I made a paper degree. I mean, that counts, right? <laughs> it's drawn in crayons. That's right. <laughs> I use magic markers. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So fill us in a little bit on what what does it entail being a police chaplain? Mm, okay. So this is going to open the fire hose. How long do you have? Uh, uh, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> got plenty of time as on much, that computer. As much time as there has room on the hard are, drive. Are you yeah. sure? Because yeah. last time we we said that I deleted a bunch of stuff and I deleted some programs <laughs> that were taking up too much space. And deleted that internet browser history. Okay. <laughs> well, we were so before you get started, <laughs> wrong computer, wrong, wrong computer. computer. <laughs> this is strictly dedicated to the podcast. Okay. okay. So, but we were sitting here and we were just doing an episode just ourselves. Mm-hmm. Well, I had a whole bunch of episodes still on there. And the reason I was keeping them was because I had a new editing software program that a buddy of mine had recommended. So Mm -hmm. I was going to start working with that. And I wanted some old stuff that I could mess with without, you know, messing up the new stuff potentially. Mm -hmm. Well, we're sitting here and we're going and we're probably what, 45 minutes, an hour in. Oh yeah. Something like that. And I turned and happened to look and there's no red icon for record. Uh And I'm like, Oh no, what happened? So we go over there and look, and it recorded about fifteen minutes, and then said, "Out of space." Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, that's brutal. And it's all right. That episode sucked anyway. <laughs> yeah, it, it was not awesome. Not at all like this. This <laughs> no. is way better. Yeah, no, this we is just yeah. fumbling through. <laughs> 
So, so chaplaincy. Yes. Okay. It, let me, I can break it down. I feel like there's two important halves of chaplaincy, two different hats that a chaplain can wear. Uh, both of those get eclipsed by a third role that is not very important. Uh, that's the one that I think a lot of chaplains that do exist, chaplains are attached to fire departments, police departments, whatever. They they jump in and get attached to that third aspect, which is the ceremonial aspect, mm-hmm. which is the public one, which is the natural magnet for people. People want to go. They want to go stand up on the stage with the with the mayor and the in the fire chief and give the invocation, the opening prayer, or the closing prayer. It's a very important feeling. Feel like you're a VIP. And that ceremonial function is relevant and important. I think it's good that when we're doing a memorial service that we invoke God and that kind of thing. That, that's important. Um, but you, but you, can't, you can't get lost in that. And I fear that maybe some chaplains do. They, they aspire to be up there in front of a crowd of thousands, and they get a little too focused on that. And it's not like anyone's listening to your prayer. I'm sorry. I've been up on those stages and, and a chaplain will spend weeks preparing just the right prayer. And they have this one line that thinks going to be really poignant. And they, they drop that out there for everyone to hear. No one's paying attention. And, you know, people are, are spaced out or looking on their phone. I mean, the, the three people in the room that actually listened to what you said in your prayer already agree with you. There, there's, there's no, there's no <laughs> value in it. And so chaplains get trapped in this ceremonial function where they're there to solemnify an event, you know, invoke the name of God, uh, represent the faith community. And, and it's not that that's bad or wrong. I, I believe in prayer. I'm a religious man myself. But that ceremonial function is so unimportant, I don't even really consider it, you know, the two main halves of what chaplains do. Right. The, the two that, that I think good chaplains focus on, not the ceremonial stuff. The ceremonial stuff, you can bring up any clergy member to come, any priest, rabbi, pastor, imam can come up and give a prayer. The, the two aspects that I'm concerned about are the short-term and the long-term pastoral care of, of people who are in crisis. And so you have in the short-term care, I function very much like a spiritual paramedic, where a paramedic's not your doctor, but he gets you from the, the incident to the doctor and provides you that short-term care that we're going to stop the bleeding and transport you and get you from point A to point B. That's what a chaplain can do for people, for members of the community, whether it's uh, victims of, of some terrible accident or, or natural disaster or whatever it may be, or maybe it's the family members of a victim of crime. The whether they're standing there with you know they got the blankets around them or whether they have the you know they're standing at the yellow tape, the chaplain can come and provide short-term pastoral care. And I'm not your pastor, I'm not your counselor, I'm not your support network. But I can get you from this hour right now where your loved one is laying dead on the sidewalk over there. I can get you from that event to your help, whether it is, like I said, maybe you got a network of friends. Maybe you have, have a counselor. Maybe you have a, a priest, whatever it is. I can get you through tonight. And for a few hours, I'm going to be here to provide comfort. I can answer questions. A lot of times I function as a liaison where, where cops and firefighters do not speak normal human language. And so they're talking <laughs> in 10 codes and all this other stuff. And, and the battalion chief and whoever's, no, it's all this gibberish. And they, they don't understand what's happening to their house or to their loved one or whatever, the chaplain come over there and interpret and explain, hey, this is not disrespect that your loved one is still laying dead on the sidewalk. 
The CSI techs and the detectives have to do all their work, and it's out of respect for your loved one that they are still there after two hours because they are going to find every scrap of DNA or whatever else they're looking for in order to make sure that your loved one is, you know, that we have an answer at the end of this. We can't reverse what's happened, but we can bring you justice. And so this is going to be a slow process. And so the chaplain is there, and I typically at a scene, I'll, I'll stay up until the bodies are moved. When the transportation company comes and puts them in a body bag, puts them on a gurney, and have, have them leave the house for the last time ever, I, I usually am right there with them, and I'm there when they're bagged up. I'm there when they're they're escorted out. I, I walk ahead of them just like I would at a funeral where I would walk ahead of the casket to the graveside. I walk ahead of the gurney out to the back of the transportation van as they go on to the coroner or the funeral home or wherever they happen to be going in that situation. So, so that's short-term care. Those family members, I'm never going to see them again. All right. It's very unlikely in a major city that I'm going to run into them casually. It's very unlikely that I already know them. Odds are that's my only interaction with them. And in that interaction, I have called their priest or their pastor or whatever they have. A lot of people don't have anything now, so I'm maybe reaching out to a counselor or a doctor or just a family member. But I'm handing them off, and that is my, that's the end of my short-term care. And so I don't know um, how you guys work in the fire service. I don't know if you're also paramedics or if that's a separate job. Well, he's a paramedic. Okay. So. And so odds of you seeing someone after you leave them at the emergency department, not real high, I presume. Unless they're a regular. Right. Well, <laughs> yeah. we yeah. get those too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 So so that's the short-term aspect. And a lot of chaplains are very good at that because they come from the same place I come from. They come from the church. They have been trained in crisis counseling. They deal with some of the regulars. They they are prepared to deal with mental health crises and and other, you know, disasters and, and horrible events. And, and if somebody is engaged in the community and connected to the community, they actually can plug right in and help in a much better way than that ceremonial chaplain I was referencing earlier, who is kind of like behind glass, like break glass in case of emergency. Those chaplains are so disengaged that if you do call them out to an F5 tornado or a hurricane or an earthquake, nobody knows who they are. And I talk to police officers all the time who are like, yeah, I hear that we have a chaplain, but I've never met him. That's a red flag. Okay. <laughs> that chaplain is disengaged. They're just there for ceremonies. They're not engaged in that short-term care of, of, the, of the citizens. And, and if they were, then the firefighters and the police officers would see them on scene. They would know that, hey, I don't have to take care of, of that screaming family member that's laying on the ground like – you know, literally throwing a fit, the chaplain can do it. In fact, I joke with my officers. I mean, the worst comes to worst. Just take the chaplain by the back of the belt and the back of the, the collar and throw him <laughs> over the yellow tape, like into the mosh pit, right? And, and, and that's what we're there for. And frankly, those cops have other jobs they need to do. And managing somebody who's having a breakdown, leave that to a trained counselor, not a 25-year-old cop. Yeah, right. who may or may not have four hours of 
some kind oh, of CIT yeah, training. Yeah, yeah, they they slept through CIT training, and and they, well, he's uh, been to CIT training. <laughs> oh yes, yes I have, yes I have. I, I did forty hours of it just this year actually, and so and I was the only one awake taking notes copiously, and everyone else was kind of like I'm gonna sit next to him next on. time. <laughs> hey, what's five? Yeah, yeah, I can, I can help you out. I can help you out. And so, uh, in fact, some of that short term work is what really instigated me getting into chaplaincy was I, uh, the thought of, cause I have a lot of cops in my church and, and the thought of some of these 25 or 30 old cops having to do a death notification kind of broke my heart. They, they have so many other things. I'm not a police officer. I've never been a police officer. I can't imagine the work and the stress that they do, but a death notification, I've been doing funerals for for 30 years. I can, I can do that. And so I got trained up on it. And my initial interest in being a police chaplain was to go do the death notifications. I uh, d- did one just the other night where, where I will, if I'm on a death notification with a detective or a public information officer or whatever, I will step in and say, okay, I'll take the lead. Give me the contact, give me the name, the deceased. Let me have all the information. I'll follow the correct procedure. So you never, ever, ever make a wrong notification because sure as enough, if, if there's Bob Jr., there's going to be a Bob Sr. and a Bob the Third, and you better know who it is that actually died and who it is you're talking to because if it can be misunderstood, it will be. Yeah. So so I'm prepared to make that notification. And at my age, at my stage of life with my experience and training, frankly, I'm that doesn't bother me that much. Uh, I can I can do this and and I can take on that stress and deal with it. And make that death notification. Tell that loved one that sorry, your your child was killed in a car wreck last night. I can I can do that where where I don't need those officers to take all the stress that they normally carry and then do this also. So so yeah. how long did it take you to be able to go to detectives and say, hey, I'm, let me take the lead? Well, specifically, to to specifically with that, I was asking the very first time. Some of them didn't know me very well at the beginning, and they're like, uh, "Are you sure?" And I, I think they kind of thought, "Well, here, this is rough stuff. We'll let the chaplain fall on his face." But I started out already having twenty plus years of ministry experience. I've I've done this in my other job, and mm-hmm. so so it really wasn't that big of a bridge to to cross for me. No, it's just a, it's a yeah. the, the trust issue with with cops and their procedures and and I, and I get well they I don't get trust it. anybody so yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly so you not, now you have to build that relationship to be able to consistently take over like hey let, let, I got this and and I, I agree with what you're saying that you know you're definitely prepared for it you know mm-hmm. how to handle it and you know how to deal with the stress that comes with the notification yeah even on the on the on the, meta- the, men- <clears throat> the mental health side. Right. Damn, damn words. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, but building that trust to let them, you know, just have them hand it over to you and they yeah. go with you, you know. Like I, I said, I don't know if the first <clears throat> time or two that they handed it over to me, if it was trust. It may not have been trust. <laughs> yeah. It may have been like, ooh, hey, watch this. Yeah. Do dinner and the show. Yeah. You know, this this will be great. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, you got your camera ready? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but there's nothing like competency to win over a first responder. And so, and so if you can do your stuff, if you know what you're talking about and you can handle things professionally, that, that, boy, that opens some doors. And so, and, and that actually leads into the other half that I think is really critical for a chaplain. It's where my focus is, is the long-term care. So lots of chaplains are able to be plugged into the community, help 
help citizens in a moment of crisis. That's, that's a special skill. A lot of them have it. It's much more rare to find a chaplain who's willing to do the long-term commitment with the first responders themselves. It's like you have jail chaplains, prison chaplains. Almost always, they're dealing with the inmates. Mm-hmm. You almost never have a jail chaplain that specifically targets the jailers the sheriff's deputies, the the corrections officers. Mm-hmm. They almost never it's almost always focused on the person in prison. Yeah. But frankly, those officers are in prison with them. You know? <laughs> and, uh yeah yeah. 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 And they need they need just as much encouragement and support for all the stuff they go through. And that's a long term relationship. And so I was trained in chaplaincy by mostly military people. They were either military chaplains or they were prior military before they went into first responder work. And so their mentality is a chaplain jumps out of the airplane with the the airborne division and is on the ground out there in the field with them. A chaplain is on the ship with the sailors. They eat the same food. They're on the same schedule. That that is, you know, a shared experience. And so I just approached it like, well, of course that's what a police chaplain should do, which turns out is actually kind of rare. Uh, you got those <laughs> folks like Matt uh, Damiancic and some others who are willing to like go to roll calls and be on ride alongs and be involved and to know what a, a, police officer goes through but but matt was a former police officer he's former swat guy so he came in with instant credibility imagine being the thoroughly civilian chaplain <laughs> you know i'm sure in. it was oh. like just easy as pie oh my you goodness just... police police officers will make themselves unlovable uh because they, they'll push you away to see if you can be pushed away and so so their their mo almost always eight out of ten cops it's like well i'm going to ignore you i'm going to turn on the the swearing to max you know i'm going to every word's going to be an f word and i'm going to just absolutely push you away to see if you can be pushed away mm-hmm. and then if you when you are pushed away because i was so vulgar and so offensive and so apathetic that you finally went away that just proved my thesis that you're someone who didn't want to be here so i just stuck it out and, and I kept showing up and I kept showing up and I never asked for anything. I wasn't selling anything. I don't, I mean, even my podcast, it's not monetized. I'm, I go out of my way to, to not sell these officers anything because they're already so cynical, so skeptical, especially of outsiders that, that I just determined, well, I'm just going to keep showing up. And after, you know, just a short period of a year or two or three or four, you know, that you will eventually believe me that I don't want anything from you. I'm just here to help. Yeah. And so that long-term relationship is very difficult to build. Uh, almost no police chaplain has a paid position with the department. It does exist. There are a few places where, like, the head chaplain is a sworn officer that's paid, but they almost always administrate, you know, a group of volunteer chaplains. And so, so there's not a lot of money to be had in this. If you want to be a chaplain, go be a hospital chaplain. Hospital chaplains go through a ton of education, and they get paid to do their work. Police chaplains almost never get paid. And so you're going to be a volunteer. You're going to be an outsider. You will always and forever be an outsider. Even someone like Matt Damiancic, who was formerly a cop, he wasn't a cop there. Yeah. And so, so he, you know, and every year that goes by, you're, you're further removed from whatever it is they're doing right now. Those policies, those techniques, that political situation, whatever it is, you're an outsider and you're always going to be an outsider. But if you can, earn some trust if you can show that you, you're not wanting anything i'm not here so i can rub elbows with the mayor or the police chief i'm i'm here because i care about 25 year old patrol cops working midnights you know 
dosing the caffeine and 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 you know <laughs> dealing with all the cynicism i care about those cops and and eventually they'll start to believe you uh it's very slow uh getting behind the badge at say 18 months to to earn trust it's it's two or three years easy yeah. and some you will never completely trust you well that's you know with in the first responder world there is always a a pushing and testing and i think some of that has to do with the personality types that come into this work mm-hmm. and then some of it has to do with the fact that this job can be life and death yes so there has to be we want to keep testing each other to make sure okay are you going to be there whenever it gets really bad mm-hmm. can i really count on you you know to do your job and yeah. maybe if i do something stupid to save my life yeah. You know. Yeah. As a first responder, you are deliberately soaking in things that most people avoid. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of people that you know, speak of critical incidents. Most people don't experience three or four critical incidents in their entire life. A first responder might see a dead body every week. Okay. A first responder might see a mutilated hand or face or other body part multiple times a year. And so over the course of their career, they're going to rack up hundreds, uh, deliberately rack up hundreds of events that are traumatizing to one degree or another, depending on your resiliency and what you're doing and how healthy you are. But, But they're deliberately racking these up where most people deliberately avoid them. That alienates you. That alienates you from your family. That alienates you from your your old friends. It makes you this weird alien species that people don't know what to do with you, which as a minister, I can appreciate. Uh, I, I, you, you'd be surprised. Most ministers are not invited on float trips. Uh, yeah, a lot of neighborhood, neighborhood barbecues, uh, stuff like that, where people are going to be joking and cussing and drinking. Mm-hmm. They don't invite the preacher. I can't. I yeah. can't imagine why. <laughs> you just gotta show how cool you are during the sermon. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. That, yeah. Drop, drop an f bomb every my, once in a while. My five kid, my five kids are so impressed with my efforts to look cool. Yes, <laughs> that, that, that uh, yeah, makes a big. Like, yeah, I like potato salad. Yeah. I like ribs. I like beer. I mean, come on, it's cool. <laughs> but uh, but you know, and and a lot of people are surprised if they do get to know whether it's a you know preacher at a church or more specifically to this conversation, a chaplain, they're surprised to find out the chaplain might be a pretty normal person and and somebody they can relate to. And they can talk about the chiefs and the weather and it's not gonna not every conversation's gonna be a Jesus conversation. Yeah. And and they kind of assume that maybe these weird alien creatures who are ministers are are just unapproachable. And when the first responder finds out that, hey, you're you're kinda like me. You're, you're unapproachable in some way. Some of the stuff you do and the stuff you see, the stuff you deliberately chose to do as a vocation that alienates you from your family, man, that's a dynamic that I have. And there's nothing like, I mean, that's, that's the beginning of friendship is to, for one person to look at the other one and say, hey, I thought I was the only one. You know, you too. This is this is this is how friendships start, and so <laughs> mm-hmm. so so there's there's a lot there. I think the Venn diagram between a chaplain, especially an engaged, what I call and what Matt Domiensic calls a patrol chaplain, that kind of of engaged chaplain has a lot in common with a first responder. And yeah. if they can be a regular at the roll call at the police station or at the firehouse and really engage and know each shift and and build rapport, even if it takes years, even if you're not being paid for it, if they can do that hard work, 
man, you've got an inroad that, you know, the, the, you know, counselors for the department probably don't have the, um, sometimes, sometimes even, even peer support falls down on because peer support might be made up of, of officers or firefighters that are a bit removed from the job that you're specifically doing now. And, uh, if they're disengaged and if they're basically a stranger to you, mm-hmm. yeah, they should know your job, but they don't know you. And when you're in a crisis, there's nothing better than having someone who knows you, who already knows your name, who already knows who you are. Uh, that's, that's a helpful person when you're, when you're really neck deep in the, in the bad stuff. That's, that's a helpful person. So how do you balance between all the roll calls and the ride alongs and all that stuff? And then plus family life and your, well, I, your I, actual job. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so I'm fortunate that in my job, uh, I, I can make my own hours. And mm-hmm. so if I'm on call and I get called out to a homicide like I was the other night, then, then I can adjust. If it interferes with something with work, I can move my hours. I can just do my, my day job later. You know, I can work an extra hour to tomorrow or something, and I can I can adjust my schedule pretty easily like that. But uh, as far as balancing things like mental health wise and that sort of thing, I have to eat, I have to take my own medicine. Right. And so, so I tell these cops, I go, you got to go talk to somebody. It doesn't have to be a counselor. It doesn't have to be the chaplain, but you need to go talk to somebody who's culturally competent and somebody who, who actually cares about you. Okay. And so, and so find somebody who's able to take this, somebody who can listen to you, that sort of thing. You need to go talk. So I've got, I've got a chaplain, well, Matt, in California and another chaplain in Indiana that, that when I leave a call, I call them and just, just as quick as I fill out my own report for the police department, I also, you know, feel like I have to debrief. And when I debrief with them, that is that then I'm done with the call. And so I need to talk about, even if there's nothing bad that's happened, I, I see a lot of dead bodies, but I don't dream about them. I mean, I, I've been doing funerals for 30 years. I'm just not, phased that much uh and when it's bad like if it's a uh you know suicide by shotgun or something like that i see one or two of those i don't go out of my way to look at the third or the fourth or the tenth and so and so i kind of guard myself in that aspect and i'm not deeply bothered by it but it's not going to be the one it's going to be the hundredth that'll get to you yeah. And so, so even if I'm not bothered, even if I don't feel like it was that big a deal, even if, you know, I get back in my, my car and turn on a podcast and I'm just like, you know, in another headspace going home, I still need to go call one of those guys and decompress and get all out. I need to story tell my trauma, even if I don't feel traumatized by it. So, so, okay, here's what I saw. And yeah, it was kind of bad. Like blood was running down the sidewalk and whatever. And yeah, the guys were joking about that, but but that's what I saw, and I'm going to spell it out, and I'll say it out loud, and that is a great psychological release to talk about it out loud. Mm-hmm. Uh, people frown on gallows humor, and, and police officers especially on a scene have to be careful because news crews show up, and they'll spot somebody laughing, and they'll put that footage on the evening news. Look at these cops standing over this dead body laughing. Yeah. Not laughing. It's, not, it's not just the media. It's everybody with a cell phone, too. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> but yeah. you did say something that I, I was going to ask you about, so we might as well hit it now. Sure. The cultural cultural competency. 
Mm-hmm. How long did it take you to achieve that? <laughs> in a Are way, you still working on it? I hope. <laughs> yes. Yeah. In, okay. in a way, my whole in a way, my whole life, uh, I've been surrounded. Even though I wasn't in a law enforcement family or a military family, I've been surrounded by those people. And I'm a natural history nerd, and so so I came into this already knowing the difference between a captain and a major or a colonel. That that was already something I was up to speed on, and then all of the intricacies of the department that I serve. Man, there's just there's no manual for that. There's and there's nothing, especially directed at chaplains, nothing to help us. And so, so it is very much you've got to be an autodidact. Teach yourself, you know what's going on. Ask ask a lot of dumb questions, and someone can scoff at you. How do you not know? You know, but of course I don't know. I'm an outsider. Yeah. And and you just have to to bring yourself up to speed, and you have to care enough to make that investment. And unfortunately, like I said, there are ceremonial chaplains who they have no idea who the people are or what rank they are or what job they have. And they just, they're not at a place in their life where they care about it and shame on them, shame on them. They, they need to, they either need to not be in that role and be walking around with a jacket that says chaplain on the back, or they need to start investing and learning how to be culturally competent. And so, yeah, I, I have read every cop book and novel and anything I can get my hands on every podcast, including some that are, very poorly made. Uh, I I just am determined to. So you've to watched soak this one? Is that what you're saying? No, <laughs> <laughs> no this is this is this is nice compared to compared to some of the stuff I've seen. Yeah, that's, that's one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good job. Chris. I try and get like five in or yeah. make fun of the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> or at least Jeremy. Yeah. yeah. He. Let me know earlier today that he's been paying guests behind my back. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I missed out on that. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know about you. You didn't talk to me. You talked to Jeremy. Um, <clears throat> now, I want to go back to something that uh, we were talking about a second Sorry. ago. And we will do this a lot of go back and forth that's and fine. back and forth. Um, but whenever you were talking about the whole self-care thing, mm-hmm. and I think that's something that gets lost with a lot of uh, counselors and chaplains that deal with the first responder sphere population of because there is this push and this idea especially amongst us of we always have to be there and work and you know that's the thing Mm -hmm. is we always have to be available Mm -hmm. because i'm always a fireman or i'm always a cop and we put those same expectations it seems like on our counselors and therapists and chaplains of you got to be available all the time Mm -hmm. and that walking that line of yeah, being available, but also taking care of yourself and doing the things that are going to recharge you is so important. And I think a lot of counselors, therapists, chaplains and stuff, they kind of tend to burn out. Yeah. Our self-care is crappy. Yeah. Uh, we, we don't, we are really good at preaching it. We're not good at living it. Yeah. And, and so we, familiar. Yeah, yeah. We can tell, <laughs> we can tell everybody else what they need to do to be healthy, but we don't do it ourselves. Oh yeah. And, uh, I've, yeah. I've definitely seen, you know, people talk about how they need to, Stop smoking to a COPD patient and yet continue to chew or, you know, diabetics need to lose weight. Yeah. Yeah. You can tell how I'm doing. Don't look at me. (laughs) I'm just, you know, I wasn't saying saying anybody specific. I don't know why you got all the It's more the the smoking while you're on your oxygen. (laughs) But this episode is brought to you by Skull. Yeah. Yeah, No, we, we do a terrible, we do a terrible job of that we uh we don't practice what we preach 
Uh, and yeah. uh, there's oh, there's a lot of problems. You can tell for me if you watch me if you knew me over the decades, you can tell how I'm doing mental health wise by what set of clothes I'm in this year. And so and so I don't <laughs> I don't smoke I don't drink um, married to my high school sweetheart I don't drive fast cars, but yeah you can spot you can spot my mental health status from a hundred yards away. Uh, if I'm putting on a lot of weight or if I'm losing a lot of weight, you can. You can watch it go up and down as the years go by, and that's that's uh, we all have our deadly, um, unhealthy habits, and it's just as bad as any of the others. Yeah. So. Yeah, you're 100 percent right about that, yeah. and we are terrible at you know it's the do as I say, not as I yep. do thing. Yep. yep. What's well, to being the the helper and the carer? Yeah. Yeah. I well, care about yeah. you, so somebody's got to take the hit. I'm going to take the hit. Yeah. We got yeah. a bit of a martyr's complex. Yeah. yeah. We, we think, oh, I'll, I'll sacrifice myself for the sake of others. Yeah. You know, we, 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 we all want to be bull from backdraft. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You go, we go. Yeah. 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 We, we all. I didn't know how I was going to work that in today, <laughs> but I knew I was going to because I sent him the picture the other day. I forget what we were talking about. Is that part of the uh, wash down drinking game? Is that you take a shot every time you hear backdraft mentioned? Oh, yeah. yeah, no, we don't do any. There's no drinking games that I'm aware of associated with this since I'm a recovering alcoholic. So, <laughs> um, I haven't had a beer in like five months. Good. It's weird. I haven't had a Bud Light in like 47 years. And so I'm, I'm boycotting. And so, <laughs> you just started early. Yes, I, I anticipated. I anticipated where they were going, and so, yep, yep. So, oh, that's I, a, I, I, I like it. I'll still drink it. I don't really. That's not going to affect me. <laughs> like whatever, man. Has it though? Has it? No. 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 <laughs> I'm still good. I'm still weird. I mean, <laughs> just terrible, terrible, terrible. You know, I guess what is it? Miller Lights got this like same controversy. I think it was yeah, Miller. So it was Coors. Yeah, about they had an ad that ran yeah. like several yeah. weeks before yeah. about yeah. women being brewers or something, and then it resurfaced because now people are offended by it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't. I don't. Every that's the thing. Every company in the in the in the country is going to have stuff that offends somebody. Oh yeah. I just don't give a shit anymore. Yeah. If I if I like your product, I'm going to use it. If I yeah. don't, I'm not. Well, it, that's kind of where I'm at with it. It's unfortunate that we are developing a culture where the highest, most valued um, currency is being offended. Yeah, and that man, that's that is a that is a culture that's spiraling around the toilet bowl. Yep. Uh, that 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 is a not not an indicator of health. Okay, no, that's an indicator of dysfunction. And so whoever is most offended, whoever has been most victimized, that that kind of, of lack of resilience, lack of self-sufficiency, very unhealthy place to be mentally. And and no, you you don't want you don't want your first responders going around like, oh, I'm a bigger victim than that. No, you gotta you gotta be able to set aside your offense and really all your other feelings, and whatever, and take care of the task at hand. Otherwise you're not very useful. And that's part of that trust thing. Talk about with firefighters and cops, where they're like, you know, do I still trust you? And and if you're having mental health problems, are you going to be reliable or not? Mm-hmm. Which is really harsh. Really, yeah. it's it can be unfair. But but you're in a situation where there's there's a collapsing building or bullets are flying, and and I cannot wait for you to feel okay. We have to do this now, and mm-hmm. I must depend on you. I must trust that you're, you know, one step behind me, and that you'll always be there. Yeah. 
that's that's a that's a bargain that doesn't have room for these luxuries of oh I'm more offended than you are. Yeah. There's not room for it in that world. Yeah, and there's, so yeah, yeah, there's not, and that's I think that's one of the things that is going to continue to be an uphill battle mm-hmm. for you know the whole mental health. I don't want to call it reform or whatever, but the the idea of going and getting help and that being okay, yeah. that's the uphill battle for it is because of that has been so ingrained for so long. Yeah. And the misunderstanding of just because you go see a therapist or just because you're struggling with this thing, that doesn't mean you're not capable of doing the job. Right. It just right. means you need some help to get past this situation. And if you're being proactive about things, then all it is is a, a checkup or getting past this one incident and not letting all of this stuff pass or stack up mm-hmm. to the point where, yeah, you're not dependable to go into that building because yeah. you're going to break down. Yeah. I mean, that's one of those things of you got to do the prep work. You know, you're not going to go to a power lifting meet if you've never lifted a weight. Mm. You're not going to jump in the pool and try and swim against Michael Phelps if you haven't been training your whole life. Yeah. Yeah. You know, hey, I've got, I got a question. So, I admit that I am relatively ignorant of firefighting and and all the ins and outs and details. Mm -hmm. I presume if you're responding to a structure fire that you're all arriving in the same vehicles, you know, there's a group of you in the fire truck, Mm -hmm. uh, a group of you in each fire truck. Is there ever a situation where like a firefighter is having trouble, you know, wanting to charge right in and it's a situation where he should. Okay, mm-hmm. we're not questioning tactics or something like that, but yeah. but he, but he he needs to charge right in, right in, but he drags his feet. Is that is that a see? It, cops are all arriving in different vehicles. Yeah, and one guy can be driving eighty to get there. The other guy can be driving twenty. Yeah, and he can hide the fact that he's avoiding the danger or the conflict, or you know, he can show he can be the third officer to show up and not have to fight somebody. Yeah. Uh, is that anything like, is that a dynamic that can happen in firefighting? So, yeah, I think there are ways that people can kind of do things like that. Okay. Like there's certain, so most fire departments or fire crews have assigned tasks of okay. what they're going to do whenever they show up. And, you know, if you're on a pumper or engine company, you're going to have somebody that's going to be catching the hydrant. So if you don't really want to go into that burning building... Oh, I'm the hydrant guy. Okay, you know all and that's the time. Not necessarily predetermined. Well, sometimes it is by where you sit on the rig. Okay. Okay. So and and sometimes it's not. I mean, yeah. it depends on how you want to run your crew. Right. Yeah. You know, the person like you pull up and the fires on the on the driver's side, that firefighter on that on that side might pull the line, okay. and then vice versa if it's on the other side. Okay. It just okay. kind of depends on how you want to run your crew and how your crew operates. Yeah. If there, it's human nature. If there is a way, and if they're that type of person, then they want to kind of shirk their responsibility and not right. really want to do their job. They're going to find a way to do right. it. So yeah, there are there are some. But see, but that goes to that trust issue mm-hmm. uh, because it's not just firefighting culture or police culture that manufactured that artificially. The situation naturally said, okay, th- there is danger. The only way to attack this is aggressively. Mm-hmm. Those who aggressively attack it could be hurt. Yeah, and so and so that dynamic was naturally produced. Yeah, and and it's going to be true no matter what we do to to encourage people to seek help with mental health issues. Um, 
that danger will always exist. The danger is not going away because we change policies or change culture. The danger is still going to be there. And so when someone's having a mental health crisis, they can see it manifest for some people in a reluctance to do the job, Mm -hmm. a a lethargy or an apathy that Mm -hmm. they're just slower or they just don't care as much. They're just not as hard charging. Some of that happens with age. That's fine. But, But some of it is actually a symptom Mm-hmm. Of something going wrong, yeah, and and if they can hide it by just coincidentally always being the third officer to show up, it, it, no one knows, and they may not even be conscious of it. Yeah. They just are. There's just a reluctance in the back of their head, and they haven't identified that as a mental health symptom. That if they went and got help, and if that was destigmatized, if they could just go get help. Then, then they could be back to normal, or they could find a different role, or they could just be healthier. Yeah, right. Well, and that's that's that thing with first responders being great liars to ourselves. Yeah, yeah, and not really being like our friend Steve Pope, who runs Firefighter Golf or First Responder Golf. Um, like he said, be self aware, and that's checking in with yourself and being honest. Of hey why am I always the third person there? Or why am I always the hydrant guy? Or why am I always the guy on the outside? Or, you know, why am I always driving, you know, the pumper a little bit slower than maybe I should? Or why am I driving it too fast? Or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, That's where you really have to sit down and you have to have that tough conversation in your head of, okay, what's going on with me? And it's time to go get some help. And like you said, the stigma has to be, you know, removed mm-hmm. so that it's acceptable to go do that. Yeah. And part of that is just culturally understanding, like I was talking about earlier, of you go get help and then you come back to work and you yeah. do your job. Yeah. And you can recover and you can still do the job. Yeah. You know, and there are cases, of course, you know, different levels of trauma for everybody and everybody handles it differently in that. And we've kind of talked about that on the podcast before of sometimes somebody just has so much stuff stacked on top of them Mm -hmm. that they have to be aware enough of their situation that it's time to hang it up. Yeah. And that is okay. And and that's always going to be a little hard to determine with mental health because even even the individual and their caregivers don't know for sure how Mm -hmm. serious this is. If you break your leg, you can heal and come back to work. If you have your leg amputated, you might not ever come back to work. Yeah. Okay? Uh, it's possible, but but it's, you know, that we all know immediately there's a difference. Yeah. With mental health, we're we're always guessing a little bit, is this a broken leg? Is this a sprained ankle or yeah. is this an amputation? Yeah, and and we're we're not entirely sure, and so again, the natural dynamic of it is always going to have a little bit of a problem because some people are going to overreact and think, oh, it's an amputation, I can never trust you again. That's where the stigma comes from. Yeah, so so that's that's difficult. Yeah, I can I ask another firefighting question. Sure. So on the opposite end of the spectrum, mm-hmm. you have the people that we were talking about before; they're a little bit reluctant, kind of dragging their feet. Sometimes mental health stuff comes up. At the opposite direction, and and they're you know driving their motorcycle 140 mile an hour, and they're they're you know rushing in first uh, with cops, uh, clear a room by themselves. Mm-hmm. Cardinal rule: do not clear a room by yourself. But they'll just they'll just you know they're clearing a house. They'll just walk in a room by themselves. <laughs> it's like <laughs> like okay, you could have been killed. What are you mm-hmm. doing? 
And sometimes somebody who's having a mental health crisis is kind of okay with going out as a martyr. Yeah. And they're like, I'm, I'm willing to do that. So what does that look like in firefighting? Uh, well, I think it's, there's some of that going on with guys who get in too deep, you know, and then of course, you know, we have the drugs, we have the drinking, we have the fast cars and the motorcycles and all of that. We have all of that same stuff, mm-hmm. um, with ours, as far as like job performance type stuff goes on, it's, you know, maybe getting in a little bit deeper or, you know, doing some stuff that maybe isn't the safest and the best, but Cause I always picture you guys working together as such coordinated units. Uh, a it's, lot of it's, policing. Co- it's coordinated chaos. Yeah. Okay. That's kind of what it, what the best way to describe it. Cause you have a lot going on quickly, but it's all at the same time. Yeah. But you know, if Jeremy's on a truck and I'm on the pumper, I know what he's doing. He knows what I'm doing. Or yeah. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, I always picture firefighting as analogous to the SWAT team. Uh, the SWAT team, they all know what everyone else is doing, but that's yeah. not true of most of policing. Mo- most of policing, you might be given an assignment by a sergeant or a detective, but but odds are you don't know for sure what everyone else is doing, yeah. and it's not very coordinated. And there's places where people can take unnecessary risks or can hold back either either direction. Yeah. Uh, but they can do that, and other people may not necessarily know. That'd be hard to do on a SWAT team. SWAT team, everyone would know that you weren't where you're supposed to be. Yeah. And firefighting a little bit more like that. So it it is, but also you got to remember the environment that we're in a lot of times, especially whenever it is a structure fire, you can't see. Mm. The only time that you know, I mean, obviously you're going to communicate and talk, but it's loud. You know, the radio's going off. People are talking on the radio. You know, you're bumping into things. So it, it is very easy to, I'm not going to say get separated from people, but to say, okay, well, this pumper company went in the front door and they went left. And then for the next company to come in and go right. And then, so you don't know the interior layout of the house. Right. You could end up over here. And then the other company is over here and you're spraying water this way and you're pushing everything onto them. Hmm. And I mean, that does happen. And especially whenever you, you start talking about having rescues and truck companies who are coming in the back of the house to do searches and stuff. I mean, that's, it's a dangerous proposition and a lot can go wrong. You don't have full awareness. You don't have full awareness of where everyone's at and what everybody's doing because it's very easy. And I would say it's more common than not to kind of almost get into a tunnel vision situation of doing whatever your task is and not really thinking about, like, if I'm on the hand line, I'm thinking about, I'm putting the fire out. I'm not thinking about what they're doing searching. Right. So, which can lead to problems, especially if they came in the back to do, you know, a search in the back. Did they close that door? Or am I pushing everything onto them? Okay. Well, yeah, does it, if, you, if you leave that door open, now you create a different flow path for yeah. the fire and the smoke, and then the heat's going to go different places. The fire, instead of the fire going where we want it to, now we've created this other one where it's easier for it to go, yeah. and it's all about pressure. And hmm. so there, there's a it's, a, it's, or, it's organized <laughs> chaos. It right. is. Right. And if, <laughs> if everybody does their assigned task, then more often than not, we can have a good outcome. Okay. But if people start deviating and getting that cowboy syndrome and stuff, then we start sending people to the hospital. Yeah. And I've been on those fires. H- how much, I don't even know what your terminology is, but how much do you debrief or go through what happened after the fact? Is that common in firefighting? Is that rare in firefighting? So for some departments, it's very common. For okay. others, it's not so much. Okay. Um, sometimes it is the companies 
we'll just sit around the kitchen table and talk about it. And, you know, kind of maybe informally. Yeah, informally, okay. the battalion chief. So the only time we have at least most departments, I'll say, the only time they have that there's a big debrief where you get brass coming in and all of that stuff is whenever something goes really bad or it's a really big fire or okay. you get multiple people hurt or yeah, somebody dies. Yeah. Right. Okay. Then they'll come in and they'll do an after action review. And but aren't people covering their butt at that point? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. It depends on your leadership. It's if not you've really, got, those aren't really punitive in nature. Okay. It's more of a, hey, this is kind of what we found. This is what we did well. This is where we can get better. That kind of thing. Because, I mean, none of us yeah. want any loss of life or any injuries at any fire or any event we go to. Right. So it's all how – it's more how can we do this more effectively. Yeah. Okay, but that's – so our our main the main statements on the fire department are and our our goals fall in this order life safety uh property conservation and incident stability mm-hmm. right so we want to make sure that we get everybody out alive if possible um then we want to save as much property as we can while we stabilize the incident and mitigate the risk okay and that's what we're trying to do on every scene Okay, so maybe here's a gap in my knowledge: or life you, safety, you, incident stabilization, then property there conservation. You go. You, you yeah, have these, I was going to let it go, yeah. but I'm like, yeah. you, you, ha- you have let these principles. <laughs> you have these principles, yeah. but to what degree are you guys on autopilot, and to what degree are the commanders on scene actually directing and making decisions? Um, that's, that's all dependent. It's, yeah, there's a lot of variables to it. Because there's where because when <clears throat> leadership has an opportunity to fail where there's truly a, I can go left or right, and I have to make a decision. Making the decision in a timely fashion and then making the right decision is pretty important. Yeah. And leaders who were great when they were following orders, I mean, that's how they got promoted. It was because they were fantastic at doing their job. Yeah. But then now they're the one making the decision, and they're maybe having a mental health crisis that's unresolved. They're battling addiction. They're doing whatever. Now their decision-making could be impaired and that could be exposed in a, in a debrief, you mm-hmm. know, it's like, boy, why, why did the battalion chief or whoever the, the, you know, whoever the captain of the crew was, I don't know what your terminology is again, I'm sorry. Yeah. But, uh, but you know, why did he not do this? If he had done this, we would have had this fire done in no time. And instead it went this direction. He just made a bad decision. Is that a, is that just, he made a bad decision or is that a symptom of something? And I don't know to what degree firefighting culture zeroes in on that. That that one is kind of tough because things are so – every fire is different. Right. And, again, you know, we don't know the layout of that house and we can't see. So that you're, you're, you're making educated guesses. Okay. So the variables up. could hide if there's bad decision-making. Or if it's something else. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you, usually it's a – I went, you know – Pull up the house, the door's on the left, so we went left because the fire was upstairs and the stairs were supposed right. to be there. But they remodeled the house, and they're back, and there's a closet with a kitchen table in front of it. Right. where the stairs are. Right. You know, well, th- things like that. It's something, something that major but minor at the same time yeah. can change the outcome of a fire. Or a window was broken before we got there that we didn't know about, mm-hmm. which changed the flow path of the fire. So when we opened the front door, introduced all that oxygen as we went in, it lit right <clears throat> so yeah, right. there's there's so many things to it well and not you can to make you can do a hundred decisions the right way 
Not to mention, you know, so things going poorly are not necess- That's not necessarily indicative that the person not, not on the scene made the wrong decision. No. Well, okay. and like he's talking about, you know, then you also have to think about, you know, construction materials, what's in the house, what's burning, and yeah. then also realize that nine times out of ten, you're going to have a single company show up initially, right. and then the next company might be thirty seconds out, depending on where you are, or a minute. Okay. And how fast fire spreads and doubles. Yeah. And all that, I mean, all of that stuff has to be taken into account. And then depending on where your battalion chief, who is quote unquote, going to run the fire, how far out are they? Well, if it's on the far end of their district or even in an adjoining district. You guys are already well into it. Yeah. Yeah. Five, seven minutes. They're already set up and doing what needs to be done. Is this an an abandoned house? So how'd the fire start? Which is kind of, you got to think about before you get there. Hmm. You know, is it squatters, like homeless people, and they're trying to stay warm? Was the kids having fun? Is it an occupied house? Right. What time of the day is it? Um, It change how you attack it? No, but not really, because I I just assume that every house is occupied. Okay. That way, I I don't make a mistake like that, because I don't want to leave somebody in a house that's savable. Right. But, you know... An abandoned house that has the gas and power shut off doesn't just they spontaneously ignite. Right. So somebody had to start that fire. But now in what context? And you you know, you wanna get a quick attack on it that way you can save somebody if right. yeah. if you're able. Well, but and, and there's, there's houses that there's just there's nothing to, to save. Right. Do we pull up. Yeah. And right. Well, I I'm not trying to be critical of the decision making no, of, the, of the the no, you're crew asking, leaderships or the yeah. battalion chiefs, but yeah. I know with, with cops, what you, what you have are these guys that were they were hard charging, they made important arrests, they were mm-hmm. super proactive and aggressive to solve crimes, and then they get promoted on up, and they find themselves in administrative roles that that is not their skill set. Yeah. They they were rewarded by being removed from the job that they were really good at. Yeah. And so what you find with cops, the average suicide for a cop is not the twenty five year old that's you know, elbows deep in a dead body, the the average suicide is in his forties and he's already been on been a cop for fifteen plus years and and it's it's the accumulation of of changing jobs and going through a divorce or two and dealing with addiction and and all the stress from years back, all the accumulated traumas, yeah. that's when he puts a gun in his mouth. And so, and so I am looking, even though I focus on patrol officers, I, I, we have three patrol divisions in the department that I serve and I split my time between those three and I get to where I've got, you know, 200 and some officers and I get to where I try to know every one of them by name. And I don't know hundred percent of them, but most of them I know pretty, pretty, pretty familiar basis, but I'm looking at their supervisors and their commanders and I'm looking for indications there, too, because even though I'm on the preventative end, I'm trying to give young police officers the tools they need to be healthier when they're 45 years old, because right now they're still 20 years away from that. Yeah. But I'm looking at the 45-year-olds, and I'm wondering, how much have you already been through? And are you yeah. showing me symptoms? Are you Are you broadcasting to me that you're this close to ending it all, but none of us are aware because you're the superstar and you've always, you've got such a great reputation. Are are there indicators in your mood or your decision-making that we should have been paying attention to? And we're all going to sit around at your funeral and say, man, we should have seen it coming. 
Yeah. I, I, I don't want that to happen. I know it will, yeah. uh, but I don't want it to happen. And so I'm always looking at those guys because most of them are about my age, you know, and, and I'm, I'm thinking, okay, these guys are studs. They've got such a great reputation, but that doesn't mean they're okay. Yeah. And, and I'm always looking and trying to interpret, you know, what's going on. And, and I don't know. I mean, yeah. I can't read their minds. Yeah. But, but like I said, we'll all say, oh, I should have known. I should have seen it coming if something bad happens. And so I'm always kind of got my radar antenna up trying to pay attention. Yeah. Well, you know, it's one of those things with first responders of we are pretty good at masking it Mm. at work. So you may be going through divorce at home. You may be going through addiction issue and all that stuff, but you still show up to work. Yeah. The very last thing that will suffer is the job. Right. Everything else fall to crap. But the job, you'll still get there and perform. It's whenever it starts affecting the job yeah. that it's at that point. Yeah. It's probably already catastrophically bad in the other areas. Yeah. 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 M- men are good at compartmentalizing. Uh, there was a book years ago that said uh, men are like waffles, women are like spaghetti. Have you heard that before? I have uh, not. <laughs> men, men, men are like waffles. If you pour syrup on a waffle, the syrup is in some squares. It is not in other squares. And it's mm-hmm. clearly defined. Yeah. That makes us really good in, a, in an emergency, okay? Because that means we can ignore all the other squares and just focus on the one that's on fire, yep. right? So, so men are great for that. That makes us good in combat, makes us good in emergencies. We can compartmentalize. Our brains are naturally wired. Most men compartmentalize very well. Which is a problem when you're looking for <laughs> you're looking for mental health things because that means yeah. they can hide all those mental health problems. They can be going through a divorce. They can be addicted to who knows what and and you know knocking their kids around. But at work, they're fantastic yep. because we compartmentalize. Women stereotypically are like spaghetti. You look at a plate of spaghetti noodles. You do not know for sure which noodles connected to another noodle. And anybody who's married knows this <laughs> it's, like, it's like why why does your mom calling have anything to do with your friend's you know child soccer team what, what does that have to do you we don't we don't understand because we're compartmentalized yep. where women are much better at making connections relationally and so everything's connected and everything's flowing and in some ways it should be easier to provide mental health to female first responders because they might be more willing to ask for it and it'd be more obvious, they're going to wear it on their sleeve a little more readily, that, hey, stuff at home is bothering me, that spaghetti noodle's connected to this other stuff I'm doing. That, in theory, should be (laughs) easier with our female first responders. In reality, it's not because... First responders are such male-dominated cultures mm-hmm. that a lot of times our females come in and immediately adopt a masculine attitude. They try to assimilate because yes. it's a survival technique. Yes, absolutely. And so so they're going to be the loudest mouth, cussing, rough guy in the room, even though you know they're you know 115-pound female. But, yeah. but, but they're going to assume that role, which also means they're going to hide – all the things that we need to be looking at as mm-hmm. as coworkers and leaders and chaplains, we, we we should be looking for clues, and they're hiding it just like the guys do. Yep. So yeah, yeah. I think it's it's that personality trait. It's the the idea of the job and the culture and all of that stuff. And you know, it it does need to change. It it has to it yeah. to move forward and to get past where we are. Um, I mean. 
Matt posts stuff all the time about, you know, how many suicides so far this year and yeah. all that stuff. And it's like, you know, it's depressing, quite honestly, of yeah. how many that already we're not six months in. And I think the last thing that I saw, 33 cops, eight firefighters, like two or three dispatchers and all this. And, you know, it's like, okay, this is a problem. And it's been a problem for a long time. Yeah. You know, I read a paper from 2017, which compiled data from like the previous three or four years. It was like 343 or 350 firefighters committed suicide. Yeah. That were confirmed. Yeah. And they actually thought or extrapolated that it was probably twice that number due to the way that it was reported by people covering it up so that the family could get benefits right. and right. all of that stuff. So, and, and we do a terrible job of tracking people who are separated from service. If they've retired or yeah. quit, they're still a firefighter that committed suicide, but they haven't worked for two years, so we, we don't count them. Yeah. And so, yeah. So how, how young can a person become a firefighter in your state? So it's 18. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. We were actually <clears throat> talking about that earlier with the, uh, the guest that we had on earlier and he started in an explorer program when he was 14 oh, wow and actually running calls and doing cpr and doing all this stuff and it's like you know we we had that conversation of you know how do you safeguard those people those because they're kids yeah at that age yeah and their brain's not fully formed no so the trauma that they are seeing and enduring what is that doing to them later in life? How is that rewiring their brain? Right. You know, oh, yeah. Yeah. and is it making them more resilient or less resilient or is it an individual basis? And like everything in this conversation, the answer is probably it depends. Yeah. But yeah. Huh. I think if you give them the tools at a young age and they understand it, I think you can make them make the case for them being more resilient Yeah. as they get older, but you yeah. got to do it the right way. Like we said, yeah. Everything has to be done the right, the correct way. Yeah. Well, what is the correct way? That's. I it, mean, because you know how you it know. depends. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, because we all talk about, you know, you're you're a chaplain and we're firefighters, and you know, in the mental health arena or mm -hmm. whatever. When you start talking about, okay, well, we're going to have mandatory wellness checks or mandatory go see the therapist or mandatory debriefs immediately. Well, I ain't doing that. Yeah. Or it could be mandatory take a shower. I ain't doing that. <laughs> mandatory <laughs> eat lunch. I ain't doing that. Right. It's like, come on. But you go. But you got the people that go the other way. Like, all right, make it mandatory. And I'm gonna walk in. I'm gonna tell them exactly what they want to hear. Right. To get the okay check mark. Yeah. And I'm and I'm back out. Yeah. Yeah. What's and, the minimum I need to do to check the box? Yeah. 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 So the reason I asked about how young it, do you? I don't know how many young, like let's say under twenty-five people you actually work with on a regular basis, but but do you feel like they do better? Like generationally, are they better at talking about their feelings or uh, anything like that in firefighting? Again, it depends. Okay. <laughs> as as a whole, I I've seen more people of the younger generation be more open about it. Yes. And not worried about the stigma or yeah. what, you know, the senior people think. That's what I think I'm seeing. And, so I'm like, I, and I, I think it's great. And, yeah. and I see and it's that. rubbing off, too, from what I've seen but so far. From, from what I've seen, it's those younger people that are a month in, two months in, or a year into their career. Right. Who have been in places that are 
more accepting of that already. Um, what I have also seen on the other side of that is younger people who are in stations that are not accepting of it, that still have that old mentality and you will see them flip of, you know, go to the suck it up buttercup, right. you know, side of the, of the fence right? per se. Huh. And so I think, you know, if, if the community or the, the people that they work with are already more leaning towards that way of being more accepting to it, or at least even being open right. to it, or at, at the least not bad mouthing it right. and not saying what a crock of crap it is or whatever, then those younger individuals have that ability to, to be more open and they're more comfortable with it. Right. Um, but it's just like anything else, you know, we talked about, we have situations and issues of doing certain jobs and you come in and it's the new guy's job to do, you know, what clean the toilets, right? Mm -hmm. Well, they're sitting there cleaning the toilets, cleaning the toilets, cleaning the toilets. And then you've got the old guy who's been on for 25 or 30 years and like, Oh, that sucks. And you know, and how long is it going to take them hearing that sucks? That sucks. That right. sucks every day before they adopt that same attitude. Yeah. Bad attitudes are contagious. Yeah. 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 I, I feel like if I had to, you know, grossly overgeneralize, which I've been doing the entire time here. So I might as well keep, <laughs> on, keep on going. I love but, it. Uh, but, uh, I think that, the under twenty-five year old crowd, which most most places in the United States, you can't be a cop until you're twenty-one. Mm -hmm. uh, some are trying to lower it to twenty, but it's pretty pretty common that you can't actually be a uniformed sworn officer until you're twenty-one. And so those early twenties, that age bracket, I feel like I'm seeing a more open attitude mm -hmm. toward mental health and every other kind of problem. They're better at taking time off. Uh, my generation. Well, yeah, you can offer me time off, but I'm not going to take it. I'll, I'll yeah. come work overtime. Of course I will. Yeah. And, and, and that generation's like, it's like, well, can I get an extra day off? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, well, so, and, and good and bad. There, there's, yeah. there's a work ethic issue there probably, but, but they are more open. They're more uh, willing to examine themselves on the negative side. Maybe they have a little less resiliency of, uh, you know, the old man and me, you know, get off my yard, uh, kind of kind of get off my lawn kind of attitude is is you know maybe they've been coddled a little bit but mm -hmm. but the ones who are volunteering to be first responders are typically self-selected where they're already toward the end where they have a little bit better resiliency they come from maybe a little bit um not on average they come from families a little bit stronger uh resources there not always but but sometimes i think you know versus just a a random sampling of the public and so i th i think i'm seeing you know people who who could have a good healthy career in in in, in you know, going down the road uh unfortunately er as soon as i generalize and say you know the majority of them i feel pretty optimistic about i'm immediately thinking of <clears> some that yeah, I, 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 everything about them. There's just, there's just red flags everywhere, and I, I worry, and I hope that they kind of get their feet under them. Yeah, but, but I'm looking at it thinking, oh my goodness, I, I'm See, not sure if you should even be in, in this. the middle here between the two. You have the old school and the new school, and you got to meet in the middle because there is, yeah, we need to be open and we need to talk about it. We need to fix the problems and you need to self reflect. It, it might help in some, but areas. there's also. The suck it up buttercups not a hundred percent wrong either. Mm -hmm. No, because there's a place for it. 
Yeah. Part and of that compartmentalizing we were talking about. It is. Yeah. But and you got to pick the right times. Just yeah. like if you if you're on the scene of, of a shooting with the police and you're or a fire with, with with the fire department and you have your command, that's not the time to worry about. Well, how are we going to help afterwards? Like, yeah, I'm worried about your mental health, but we got to deal with this first. Yeah. So suck it up for now, and then we're going to go deal with it. Yeah. Because we have a job to do first. Well, and I, so I, you I think hit it's that happy medium. And I think it's one of those things of, you know, you see the new recruits come in, police department, fire department, and, you know, you can say, oh, I see this person is going to be good. This person is going to be good, whatever. And this person, oh, they're terrible and they're not going to last and they're not going to last. I think with the staffing issues that are nationwide, mm-hmm. I think those are exacerbated. Yeah. Because it is the. You can't be too picky. Yeah. You need every you, warm body you can get. Yeah, but at the same time, you can't lower your standard either. Yeah, but they get lowered. Yeah. Uh, they do, yeah. and I mean, and there'll be look, consequences to that. There are consequences. Yeah, yeah. there Memphi- will be. Memphis is be. a prime example of what happens when you lower the standards, yes. especially for PD. Yeah, like not a yeah. single officer that was on that scene would have been hired five years previously. No, no, no. But but. As soon as you lower standards, people in 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 first responders, people will die, mm-hmm. uh, and it may not be the ones that didn't meet the standards. Yeah, <laughs> it, it'll almost always be somebody adjacent to them. Yeah, uh, and so and so it'll absolutely cost you. And I'm not opposed to somebody who's very mediocre holding down a spot for a while. I appreciate it. This is not going to be your career. You know, you came in and you helped some for five years of your life and we appreciate your offering. Thank you very much. Um, but, but the, the fear is that they would, people, people are survivors. Mm-hmm. And so you let somebody in that really shouldn't be a cop or a firefighter to start with and they don't handle it very well and they, but they want to survive. And so they will find their way into a niche that might include leadership um, could be some sort of administrative position where you can make decisions and control things and they can become the king of their own little, of their own little kingdom and they can control equipment or property or whatever. And, and they never should have become a cop in the first place, you yeah. know, but, 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 but on the flip you, side, they might be really good in there. What's that? And on the flip side, they could be really good at the administration role. Yes. Oh. They, they could be really good at decision-making when they're on the outside, not, being faced with that danger and yeah. having that that dopamine and the adrenaline yeah. and all of the cortisol and all of that stuff dump or or shrink up or however you want to put it yeah so there's there I think there's a spot for everybody you just got to find their strength yeah I, I have two now there types are of cops that there are those that me. don't need to be there at right all. don't get me <laughs> right. wrong but there are some of those I'm not yeah. saying that I have know. two different types of cops that come to me and are you know wondering what should they do next should they continue in this career or not. And there are some of them, and I don't, I never know for sure, but I try to get a read on it. And some of them, they need to go sell insurance because they, they never should have gone to the police academy in the first place. They're not cut out for this. There's not a niche that would be appropriate for them. I don't care what it was. There, there's, they just need to go do something else. But there's others where with police officers, you almost always start out on the road in patrol. And that is not a good fit for every cop. There are some cops who hate that job mm-hmm. at long hours, forced overtime, often working by yourself or maybe one other person. It's just miserable. 
and it's very dangerous. It's very unpredictable. It's it's just bad for young families. It, it, a lot of people they don't adjust to it. And for them, I'm saying I'm not telling them to go sell insurance. I'm like, hey, just hang on. If you can wait two or three more years, then you can bid into some other specialized unit, and you might love being a cop if you weren't in patrol. You know, if yeah, you could, could go be. do something else. You well, know. and that's where I think these career fields need to adapt and change with the times. And really take a hard look at leadership as a whole mm-hmm. and being able to move people and put people where they will be successful. Yeah. Because you do have those people who are going to be superstars at a, some kind of administrative role. Right. But they are garbage EMTs or firefighters <laughs> or cops. You know, they're right. just terrible. Yeah. But you set them behind an Excel spreadsheet and they're going to be a rock star. Yeah. You know, and at the same time, you've also got the other end of the spectrum of people who are terrible at any type of administration, Mm -hmm. but they are the best firemen you've ever seen. They can read smoke and read a fire and they know exactly where to go every time or, you know, they are the best technical rescue person and they can get somebody out of a car like, you know, it's like magic. But it's often that type of skill set that gets you promoted. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so, Peter Principle kicks in. And, yeah. yeah, and yeah. I'm not against those people being promoted. I'm not a hundred, not at all. I mean, sure. I think sure. that's part of treating this job like a career, of because you do want to advance in your career. You want to make life better for your family. You want to, you know, make more money and all of that stuff. But with that comes the responsibility. To, responsibility to learn leadership and also pass down that knowledge. Mm-hmm. So you find the next technical superstar or the next pumper captain who is going to train his people up or her people up to be those rock stars that we need. Yeah. And, but it's, it's having the ability to put people in those places and I don't know, aptitude test. Well, but, but, but that depends on how old they are because every man has a transition he has to go through from where he was the young warrior to being the the old sage mm-hmm. and that transition boy that can be bumpy i mean tell tell a guy that's 15 years on the swat team that you know you're getting too old to be kicking down doors oh it's his whole identity yeah that, you know, how, how, i mean he he really needed to have been preparing you know for a promotion or a different job or something years ago yeah but he was good at what he was doing he was yeah. the best at what he was doing yeah and his whole identity is wrapped up in that. You're telling him he shouldn't have been focused on. That's what he was good at. Yeah. And so and so every guy has to do that transition, and that's really difficult. Yeah. And, and some guys some guys do it gracefully, but but others struggle with it. Yeah. And a lot of times it are it, it's that you know stereotypical professional athlete who's only ever played second base his whole life, and yep. and and now now what's he supposed to do? Yep. When that ends, yep. right? And so every firefighter, every cop is going to have a similar kind of dynamic where stuff you were good at early in your career is not necessarily what you'll be doing. You'll either have to stop your career or you're going to have to transition. And can you do that well? Uh, are you going to have the emotional reserves to do that? Are you going to have the family support to do that? Are you going to have the mental health to do that? Yeah. And and a lot of a lot of times we're so depleted in all of those areas 
what should have been a very clean transition becomes a bit of a hot mess. Yeah. And that's that's sad to see. And so it is, but it's very common. And it's yeah. a very you know, it's it's not specific to us. Like you talk about athletes, military yeah. guys. I got a buddy of mine that spent almost twenty years in special forces and like he's like, Yeah, he goes at the end. I was there because of my knowledge. He goes, I couldn't yeah. keep up with those 23, 24 year olds. You know, they would, you know, run circles around me, but I was there because I knew, okay, I see that that's an ambush, yeah. but we're not going there. But that's, you know? but that's the old sage. Yeah. You start to be useful, not for what you can carry, what you can do, but, yeah. but for what you know and what you can teach. Yeah. And if you can transition from the doing role to the, to the giving information role, the teaching role, that's that if you can find whatever that is in your field and make that transition and anticipate it, be yeah. prepared to transition it. Well and be allowed you'll be, you'll be better. Yes. Be allowed yes. And sometimes to transition. you're not. Yes, yeah, sometimes yeah. there's structures in place that keep you from it. Yeah. yeah. And most police departments, most uh fire departments, you know, to get into those positions, it's usually some kind of promotional process or test yeah. that you have to take. And you know, oh yeah, you might be great at it, but you're number two on the list. Right, so, right. And we're only so, promoting one this year. Yep. Yeah. So yeah. sorry, you get to take the test again. Yeah. So, yeah, that's one of those things. But that goes back to what I was saying earlier: of we need to modernize, for lack of mm-hmm. a better term, and start thinking about putting the right people in the right spots for them to be successful and yeah. to make the departments better as a whole. Yeah, and providing helpers that can help them and guide them people like chaplains who are not part of the promotion process. Yeah. Uh, they can be your advocate, but not directly involved in your, you know, uh, you know, discipline or your, your promotions or whatever. Uh, have you guys, I don't know what your departments are like, but, uh, do you guys have fire chaplains? Do you know who your fire chaplains are? Do they know you? So we have we, what? Three? three. We have three. We have three. Um, I know one of them. Okay. Um, but not because of, him being on because he was on the job and he's been on the podcast a couple oh, okay. times. Okay. <laughs> so that's how I know him. But it's not like I think some departments do a really good job of putting that out for their people. Mm-hmm. And but those are also the departments that do a really good job of taking care of their members' mental health and doing things that are proactive with their physical health and like they're right. they're they're proactive. We'll just say that. And then I think some departments don't do a very good job of that. They don't let you know what resources that you have, you know, be it whether it's mental health, physical, or chaplain's programs. Um, and I think that just, it's one of those things where it's going to boil down to department specifics of, yeah, we have this, we have that. And, you know, the information flow, which we kind of talked about earlier today, you know, there's a top-down that needs to come of, Hey, you've got all of this stuff, but then a bottom up of, Hey, we need this. What, what do we have that looks like this? Right. And some departments do it better than others. Yeah. So yeah. just like any fortune 500 company, some are better at certain things than others. And yeah, it's just right. one of those things. Right. Yeah. So the reason I ask is because my secret, ulterior motive to being here today is to recruit you guys to become first responder chaplains someday. Uh, <laughs> because because here, here's the deal. Uh, my day job is I'm clergy. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a minister at a church. Okay, I'm a preacher. Those are getting rarer and rarer. 
Okay, there are fewer churches in the world, you know, now than there were, you know, in the United States than there were 50 years ago. Um, but there's, but the number of churches that are closing are being outpaced by the number of ministers that are leaving ministry. Uh, you guys talk about all the problems first responders have, people who are in ministry, you know, divorce, alcoholism, suicide, that hits them too. And so a lot of, like I look back, you know, 25 years ago at the guys I graduated college with, uh, went to a Bible college, we're all going to be ministers or youth ministers or missionaries or whatever out of a, the, let's say 20 or let's say two dozen people that I was close to. I think there's two of us that are still in it 20 years later. Uh, yeah. everybody else has burned out, whether they just quit and went to sell insurance or whether it's like that's a really you terrible are job. I'm rough on the insurance salesman. Yeah. Is that like, what, is what your yeah. wife does? Is she, no, does she no. sell insurance? My brother did that for a little while. Yeah. If you can't yeah. do anything else, just go you sell, sell insurance. insurance. But, uh, but, but some of them have done that. Some of them completely left the faith, whatever. Um, some of them, you know, even worse. And so the numbers are not good. But I look across first responders and I'm like, we need chaplains. Peer support's great. EAP's great. All, all the other resources are fine. But where are those advocates that can come in and really, I mean, there's nothing connected, like I said, to promotions or discipline. I am just here because I care about the health of this 25-year-old firefighter or 25-year-old police officer. Who, who's doing that? Who's guiding them? Some of these, some of these, off, some of these officers don't have biological fathers that were in their lives where's the chaplain that can come in and, and fulfill that role and, and, and be a guide to them and help them through a very difficult career and get managed to get through it and, and not only get home each night safe, but to finish their career safely. There's not enough ministers to come in and do it this traditional route where I was in ministry for years and still am. And, and then that evolved into me volunteering as a police chaplain. There's not enough of me and I need 10,000 more of me. And so, so what I have to do is think outside the box and I can't go to the, the Baptist preachers and the, the Catholic priests. There's not enough of them left. I need to go find retired first responders who already have cultural competency. I need them to come in and, and fulfill that role. And some people object like, well, I'm, you know, I'm not really, I'm not like ordained clergy, that's fine. I already said, I think the ceremonial roles of the chaplains are the least important part of the job already. We need people who maybe, maybe you did a little uh, program or got a certification or a training in counseling. Maybe you do have some religious training or something like that. Whatever, whatever gives you a foundation to be a trusted advisor, a trusted guide. Let's take your cultural competency you already have as a first responder and turn you into a helper, and that might be your second chapter. Every first responder, first responder jobs are not jobs you work when you're 75 years old. And so, so you, most first responders retire relatively young. They have a lot of health. They have a lot of energy still to give. I need first responders who can, you know, maybe, like I said, get a little bit of certification and training and whatever, and then come in and help. And you're know, thinking, think, well, yeah, well, I'm not going to go back to my department. That's fine. I wouldn't advise that. I don't think a police officer who retires should go back to his own department and be a chaplain. I think it's actually better to go somewhere where people don't know you 
and 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 you've you've got the cultural competence because you were a police officer or a firefighter, but you you don't have the the uh, reputation of well we know you and you know it's the whole yeah. a, a profit. <laughs> we in were drinking country. with you two right. weeks ago mm-hmm. yeah. at yeah. the bar. <laughs> really, yeah. Clarence? Yeah, come on. <laughs> I've got I've got a chaplain friend. He is a a retired LAPD officer. And he moved to the Midwest, and then he now is a, a chaplain at an agency here in uh, uh, in our hometown. And and man, he's fantastic. And had, did he ever lay eyes on that agency before he came to be their chaplain? No, but he's got all the respect in the world from the officers because he was at LAPD. Yep. And so and so seeing those guys come in and and offer guidance and care and concern i mean man that's sometimes that's all we need is is if we're in a crisis if we just knew that somebody cared mm-hmm. that might keep us from putting a gun in our mouth yeah well it's that great i call it you know the great lie of i'm the only one who's right. ever gone through this yep you yep. know and i say it with sarcasm because once you've been through it and come out the other side, then you know how stupid it is. Right. But you know, that's but what we all believe. That's what we yep. all believe. And that's part of removing that stigma of going and normalizing the stuff of, hey, this stuff that we see and the things that we do and the things that especially police officers with moral injury. Yeah. The things that, you know, if they have to use their weapon or yep. whatever, that yep. takes a toll. It yep. has to. Yeah. But yep. they have to know that that's normal. And it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't get into it to shoot somebody. They got into it to help people. Yeah. But shooting somebody is something that might happen during yeah. during your career. And even if you don't kill them, I mean, just thinking that you caused harm. I mean, I've, I know cops that have shot somebody and two minutes later they're applying the tourniquet and they've got the person's blood all over them because, you know, they're trying to save that person's life. Yeah. But, but you still did you still attained a, a moral injury by having caused the harm in the first place when that wasn't ever your intention. You never thought you were there to hurt people. Yeah. And then you think, man, am I someone who hurts people? And, and you have this identity crisis, a terrible, terrible thing that goes on. Another first responder would understand that. Yeah. And so seeing cops and firefighters go be um, even cross you know, uh, disciplines, you know, a firefighter, retired firefighter could be a chaplain for a police department and a retired cop could be a chaplain for a fire department. There would be still enough cultural competency to really make an impact. And if I can recruit a future generation of chaplains to come along, I mean, especially where they don't, not getting paid, having a pension would help tremendously. Uh, (laughs) you know, you know, we need those people to come in and contribute and we're recruiting people who are counselors people who are former first responders people who who are lay ministers like maybe in their type of church it's not that they went to seminary but they just kind of got trained within their own church and they have some ability to help people in crisis we're recruiting all of those kinds of people to become chaplains and get them there's there's chaplain training out there it's mm-hmm. easy to find uh most of it's pretty basic you know your standard um you know critical incident stress management type stuff you know but we'll we'll, we'll get you through that and and get you that training and get you to volunteer and then just go find a firehouse and know all of those shifts that work at that firehouse or just go find a a, a you know, police station and just know those patrol officers at that police station. We're not asking you to solve the whole world's problems. Just go find 
a few dozen first responders and know them by name, care about them, invest in them, be there for them year after year, it'll literally save lives. And that's that's what I'm trying to do. So if you guys just sign here on the dotted line, <laughs> we'll <I> would... <laughs> Oh, it was a great sales pitch. Yeah, I like it. It's not a bad idea. No, yeah. well, and I mean, you so know, we're, we're, about... where's foul language fall in this the whole thing? I'm, hey, I, I'm a I, cusser. Well, I, work, I work with some. <laughs> I work with some Lutheran chaplains that they can both drink and swear you under the table, and so it's it's impressive. That's a, that's a whole different religion. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but no, there's there's all kinds, and and like I said, there's. Um, there are some that are just as square as square can be. That'd be me. Uh, but there's others, like I said, that are former first responders, former military, and boy, there's nothing you can do to to scare them off. And frankly, even some of us who are pretty square, you can't scare us off either. Uh, we're we're determined to love these cops, whether they want to be lovable <laughs> or not. And so, yeah, sounds like cops. Oh yeah, firefighters yeah. better. Let's <laughs> be honest here; <laughs> we're easier uh, to like. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, it, and it's funny—not funny that you say that, but it's one of those things where you know the guy we were talking to earlier today was talking about you know oh, he's about to retire and maybe getting a little bit of counseling degree and then doing some of that stuff and you know staying connected that way. And then I've talked to several other people within the past few months of. They're like, yeah, I'm probably going to get, you know, counseling degree. And one guy that we had on the podcast, Mike Delaney, former cop, Mm -hmm. that's what he's doing right now. He's waiting to get into his master's program for that. And it's one of those things where I think people that have gone through that stuff and then come out the other side see the importance of it. And they also see the shortage and the need. You know, my wife is a, a counselor. Okay. And that's her whole practice is first responders and veterans. And it's like, yeah, we're, we need help. We need more people that do this yeah. type of work yeah. because the, the demand is only increasing. Right. right. It, it's like, you know, call volume with the police department, fire department. It's only yeah. increasing. It's not getting less. Yeah. We had, we had a, a cultural shift that I think hurt us to some degree. It's not that we can't overcome it, but, but it hurt us. We, if you go back a few generations, I was talking earlier about, about the people who volunteer to be first responders are a self-selected group. Mm-hmm. And, and so you find a lot of folks, especially a few generations back who came from, um, church going families with two parents, they were boy scouts and, you know, there was just like this track that, that led to people volunteering for the military and to be first responders. And not that that was everybody, but, but that definitely was a stereotype. Yeah. And those who grew up in church for all the negatives you can say about church culture and, and the things we've seen in American church culture in the last you know 200 some years, one of the positives was the people growing up in church heard about life and death and the afterlife on a regular basis. And so mm-hmm. this was a conversation they had on a, on a regular basis. I mean, literally worshiped a God that was tortured to death. 
and and there there's an understanding a familiarity with serious topics like that that were talked about regularly from the time they were little bitty all the way i've heard it every week they talked about dying they talked about death they talked about what happens after death about having hope all these things related they were bathed in that all through their childhood and even if they got into adulthood stopped going to church they still had all of that built-in resiliency that that others didn't have well now we have young people coming into being first responders that that have never been in church because they're now maybe a couple generations removed from going to church and like i said not that going to church is the be all and end all although i personally am in favor of it uh (laughs) but but the but the loss is now you have people that are being thrust into an environment where they're seeing death up close, but they did not have 18 or 21 years of discussing it every week before that. And and some people will be fine. It, it won't matter. They'll be fine. But I think the when you're talking about tens of thousands of first responders, millions of first responders, it, we would see better percentages. Yeah. If, if they had been raised with that, if they'd had stability, if they'd had those conversations, if they'd had that, that inculcation, um, we don't have that. We're not going to get it back. We can't snap our fingers and change it, but, but that is part of the dynamic we're working with now. Uh, I talked to first, I counsel with first responders that, that really have not ever had some of the conversations that when I'm going and teaching first and second graders at my church, I'll sit down and teach them a lesson about dying and things like that, that I'm like, Oh wow! I'm talking to a 35 year old cop who's never had that conversation, and so that's a that's an interesting dynamic. Never, yeah. never thought of it that way. Yeah, and we've sat here and we've kicked around that topic quite a bit of the cultural shift and why is it so hard to get people in the door and why do people seem less resilient now than they did in the past and yeah. what's changed and what's changed and that's one thing. That's, that's, we, a, that's another factor. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I grew up in the church. Yeah. We went yeah. every Sunday. Yeah, it, it had yeah. an impact on you, it, even if you had a negative experience. I don't have any idea what you're. No, I, was, I never but, had a negative experience. But but even if you had had one, except he was a Duke fan. Uh, oh well, that could hurt anybody. Yeah, yeah. Pat, yeah. Rock F- Father, Father Whoa. Whoa. Rock Chalk, baby. <laughs> Come on, bro. F- Father Paul was bro. a Duke fan. We sit up there, you know, with why the deacon was doing his stuff, and we just talk shit about basketball and how KU was better. How KU was better. No, Duke's better. And did you watch the game? And yeah, watch this one. You know. And, and the Bulls were really good at the time. We were up in Chicago living. Right. And so we talked about <laughs> – or we're actually, we were in Springfield, Illinois. But we talked about the Bulls and baseball yeah. and all that. He was great. <laughs> but, that, but all of that had an influence on you and, and I would argue would have, on average, given you and people like you a little bit more resiliency, a little bit – you have somewhere to start with. If you want to talk to somebody about – like yeah, I went to that call and the passenger's head was missing, and that image has been seared in my mind. I, every time I close my eyes, I think about it. You at least have a foundation to begin that conversation that someone who didn't have that religious training as a child may or may not have. And like I said, not that everybody. I mean, I've met some non-religious people that are very squared away, um, and I've met some religious people that are cuckoo for cocoa puffs, but. On average, I think that that helps, and I, I see it in the counseling that I do. Yeah, I, I can see that definitely being a factor. Yeah, you know, just an, another avenue. Well, you know, and, you know what I mean. I'm not, I'm not discounting anything you're saying. So I think it's yeah. another reason. Yeah, it just on the broader yeah spectrum of society. I mean, you see yeah. how our society has shifted just in the past twenty years. Yeah, 
you know, of what was important. Five to ten years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but if you look back, so, I mean, go back and watch some of the old, like, I'll bring up Key and Peele, you know, a TV show that was on ten years ago almost now. They get canceled now. Yeah. Yeah. They couldn't do those shows, and they're talking about some of the same topics that are now just being completely blown out of proportion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's like, okay, this was an issue then, but it. Everybody was laughing about it. It wasn't really an issue. It shows how kind of dumb it is. But now this is what people are hanging their hat on, and they're losing friends over. Yeah. Did, the, you, ever, did you ever watch Seinfeld's Comedians in Cars getting coffee? Uh, no. That? I'm not a big Seinfeld fan. Okay. My dad was it, talking about this. I watched an episode with him. It was pretty good. It, it's it's remarkably good. He he meets up with a with a, another comedian. They drive some fancy classic car or whatever. Yeah, because he can buy anything he wants. Right. And so, and so, but the conversation in several of those episodes go back to, yeah, it's a good thing we're at the back end of our career as comedians because nowadays nobody finds anything funny. They're all too offended. Could you imagine Sam Kennison oh, yeah. right now? W- wouldn't. R- Ronnie Dangerfield? Wouldn't get out. Richard Pryor. Richard, yeah. Yeah. No, they wouldn't. Eddie Murphy? They wouldn't get out. Yeah. Get, wouldn't get off the ground because they'd get canceled and everybody would be so outraged. And yeah. so, and so that's a cultural shift that affects our first responders, mm-hmm. um, that, that affects how they view themselves, how their peers view them. Um, if you're a cop, there are people who, I mean, you can be a black cop, but you're a racist. You're part of a, you're part of white supremacy just for wearing the uniform. Mm-hmm. And, and that absolutely affects how you feel and, and how you process trauma and whether you're healthy or not. Uh, that that shift in our culture is very toxic, and it's absolutely showing up in the health and wellness of our first responders, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, and our comedians, those poor guys, they're yeah. just they're struggling. Yeah, <laughs> some, who's the, some who's the guy that used to do the roast with Dean Martin? He uh, old white guy, the insult comic. Yeah, um, can't think. Of his, his Don name? Rickles. Yes, Don Rickles. Don Rickles. Yeah, yep. like I could, yep. his, I couldn't, I could see his face, and I'm like, what's freaking name? I can't remember. All of a sudden, yeah. Yeah, he was. Imagine him right now. Oh, good lord! It's still funny when you watch it. No, yeah, no. There are very few like Dave Chappelle who can who can still be successful. But he's on that. He's big enough that he can take the hits. Yeah, you can't. He's too big to cancel, and so that that's good. Well, I I think it's the it's the I don't care attitude. Yeah, like whatever. I don't care what you think. Uh, That's that's good advice. You cannot like publicly. You cannot be canceled unless you care. Yeah. yeah. Okay. If you I, care, then they have power over you. I saw I saw a little a meme uh, on Instagram of this little girl. She's probably three, four, something like that, sitting in a car seat, and she's sitting there. She's looking at the camera, and she goes, "You got to stop worrying about what other people think." Have you met other people? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, wiser words have never been spoken because <laughs> it's yeah. true. And you know, but that goes back. You can tie that in with removing the stigma. Mm-hmm. Of ultimately, you have to make a decision. What is more important, your quote unquote imaginary reputation, mm-hmm. or your mental health and the way that you interact with your family and the people around you? Yeah. What yeah. is most important to you? The fact that you're going to get through your career, retire, and have a happy life, right. or are you going to commit suicide? Yeah. Or are you going to be a miserable jerk yeah. and go through two, three, four divorces yeah. because you won't go to a therapist? Yeah. 
and fix what probably can be fixed. Yeah. You've got to stop worrying about what other people think about you and yeah. just do what you need to do. Yeah. Yeah. If this were a physical problem, if you had cancer, most of us would not hesitate to go to the doctor for that. Yeah. Uh, but mental health stuff, boy, we just kick the can down the road and pretend like yeah. it's not there and, and we're worried what people think about us. Man, get over it. Yeah. We would rather you be alive than, than – you know, the alternative. So, so please, yeah, get some help and, and, and everyone else needs to try to learn how to be supportive and, and get with it. Like I said, we don't, I admit that we don't know if it's a sprained ankle or an amputation, Yeah. but, but let's assume it's not an amputation yet. Let's assume that you will work your way back into the job or into a, an adjacent role within the field. Let, let's let's assume that you'll get that help, and we're not going to judge you or tear you down just because you raised your hand and said, yes, I need some help. Yeah. So let's well, and try these, anyway. In these cultures, I mean, we, we give all this lip service to this is a family. This is a calling. This is that. Well, would you tell your brother, yeah, uh, kick rocks? you know, because he's having a little issue. No, you try to help him out. And that's what we need to start. Stop giving lip service to it and actually yeah. doing what we're. Yeah, if you're going to yeah. talk the talk. Yeah. Walk, walk the walk. walk. Yeah. Yeah. That's that going to be my final thought. That's your, <laughs> final, yeah. that's your final thought. Yeah. Okay. If you're going to talk the talk, walk the walk or shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> Come at me, bro. <laughs> Oh, well, Jared, thanks for coming, man. I appreciate it. This has been Absolutely. awesome. So, yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah, we'll um, do it again. You can try and recruit us again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll give you another shot. This time, bring actual paperwork. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, do you have any closing thoughts? Um, chaplains are an underappreciated part of the first responder mental health wellness scheme because they've had too many self-inflicted wounds. You've had too many chaplains who didn't pay attention to their officers. They didn't engage. They never showed up. And when they did show up, they just chummed around with the chief um, or the other commanders. Uh, maybe it's because it was you know, people their age or whatever, but they, but they just failed to engage the new generation of cops that is constantly rolling in the door. And for lack of paying attention to the people who needed help, they isolated themselves, they marginalized themselves, and they became irrelevant. And so there are places that have chaplains on the books, and if you call them up, yeah, you got this 80-year-old guy that you've not seen in 30 years. And that's a crying shame because we need more chaplains who can get out there and just like you know Christian chaplains have been doing for over a 1,000 years, they're willing to be on the battlefield with the bullets flying, uh, suffering the same kinds of sufferings, and providing a type of help that the counselor back in their offices can't do, and uh, and it's a great you know addition to the counselors and and the other helpers. But the chaplains need to be there. There needs to be there needs to be a chaplain who's actually you know worn the fire gear and 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 you know been in the police car and and they understand in a very visceral way. They know the smells. They know the the stresses they they've they've experienced it and and that is what a chaplain does that's that's that makes him a very unique helper and uh, we need more of them desperately
I don't know what I can. Nope. Yeah. That, that nope. wins. That wins. <laughs> talk. If you're gonna talk the talk, walk the walk, or shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> what those two guys said. He, that's what he said. <laughs> almost those exact words. Yeah, I, yeah, I just yeah. paraphrased. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're the translator. Yeah, I translated that one yeah. for, for our audience. Call you Luther from now on. See, now, now, now yeah. my cops can understand. Yeah. yeah. All right. All right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, everybody. Uh, like we end every episode, look, if you are struggling, there are resources out there. Reach out. If you know somebody that is struggling, let them know what resources are out there. Reach out to them. Let them know you care. Um, yeah. Thanks for stopping by and uh, take care of yourself. <laughs>